Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pakulski. Today, we're going to talk to Elliot Hulse, a gentleman that came to fame through YouTube, Strength Camp, and now has evolved into being sort of an outspoken leader or philosopher, if you will, as far as being extremely educated in a lot of areas. Elliot's very, very opinionated. He's got a very strong opinion. He's got a very strong voice. Um, He's an incredible guest. We had an incredible long conversation about some really interesting topics that are a little bit off topic, but still of massive interest. So we talk about fasting and the benefits Elliot has seen in fasting. So Elliot used to be a strongman competitor um, and has since lost a tremendous amount of weight. Uh, He talks about his experiences with 10-day fasts, and I'm really curious about that because it seems as though every spiritual and religious body since the beginning of time has uh, encouraged fasting for the spiritual benefits, so I dig into that a little bit. Um, We move from there into something that obviously you know is a massive interest of mine is parenting. So it's got some very interesting um, opinions when it comes to parenting as well as relationships and the dynamic between men and women, this idea behind what is the ideal relationship and what is the role of a man that masculine role and what is the role of a female his beliefs are that the uh, current society is blurring these these roles and there's some certain validity behind that and he's definitely got a strong opinion he's extremely well educated on the matter and he seems to continue his uh, pursuit of educating validating these beliefs Um, I think there's definitely something to be thought about there. I don't necessarily agree or disagree. I just think it's an incredibly interesting conversation, incredibly interesting point of view. You guys know I'm always bringing on the people that are going to challenge the paradigm and challenge what we commonly believe. And this is in no way an attempt to degrade women. It's just an attempt to isolate men and say, hey, guys, this is what we're supposed to be doing evolutionarily. This is what the species is meant to do. Um, so hopefully you guys uh, enjoy the conversation with Elliot Hulse. I know it was definitely very thought-provoking. It was definitely provoking in many ways. Uh, I know this is probably going to uh, rub some people the wrong way, uh, but that's okay. And if it encourages you to, you to think, encourages you to challenge what you think you know, then I think it's an amazing conversation. And I'm very grateful for Elliot giving us his time. Uh, he laughs a little bit about the fact that he gets a lot of slack on the internet for ultimately polarizing men and women. But if you think about the polarity that's the polarities that exist in the universe, it does make a lot of sense. And if you, if you, um, follow it down the path of the ambiguity that exists in current relationships and how we have a massive failure rate in marriages and relationships. And, uh, there's, it could, perhaps not causative, but correlative, have something to do with the blurring of the genders. And I think hearing this opinion is valuable and maybe just encourages us to uh, step into our own role, whatever that happens to be in relationships. Um, If you happen to be the leader, if you happen to be the follower uh, and just taking ownership for whatever that happens to be, because in every relationship in every tribe, there should definitively be one leader. We wouldn't live in a tribe of 30 people that had 10 leaders. We would obviously be misled and, and be very confused, which is, again, what it seems to be going on in society right now. So uh, a lot of really interesting conversation. Uh, Elliot and I really enjoyed chatting and uh, I love talking to very, very smart people who can back it up. And again, remembering this is one man's opinion. This is his perspective. I could offer many other perspectives uh, as to uh, why um, certain aspects of relationship roles exist particularly in the realm of voting. Uh, Elliot's got an opinion there, um, but you know, this is again, his opinion and I love this conversation and I hope you guys too. 
Tell me about what you experienced when you fasted, man. I'm very curious because I haven't done a 10 day fast. That's, that's intense. Uh, humility. (laughs) That's the biggest, that's the biggest takeaway because you have to submit yourself to the, to the pain. You just got to sit there. You don't have the energy. You can't make yourself go work. You can't make yourself go work out. And if you do, you're, that your efforts are going to be fruitless. Like, why? Why bother? So I spent a lot of time just sitting, just looking out the window. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. And that that's hard, sure. you know. Damn right it is. It's probably exactly what you needed. But I realized. So next, and I, I took on too many responsibilities during my fast because, you know, I, I think I'm a beast. That's what you do. I yeah. can do it. I can do it all. But next time I realize I have to set aside days where I have absolutely no responsibilities, nothing to do, and I can just sit. So walk me through the journey though, man. So the first 24 hours is typically hard. Second mm-hmm. day starts to get a little easier. Third day, you're kind of, well, this is kind of easy. I can keep going on. At what point does it start getting hard again? It only got hard on day 11 for me because I was at freaking Disney World with my family, walking around <laughs> in the hot sun, dehydrated, standing yeah. on lines. And uh, <laughs> so I my plan was to go a minimum of 21 days. And then I realized I started in March 1st and my birthday is April 10th. And that was exactly 40 days. So here I am thinking I'm Jesus. And I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do 40 days. But yeah. uh, they didn't work out that way because after, within that first 10 days, you know, like I said, I was in Disney. And I was like, All right, I can't do this any longer. So I broke. But I'll try again. I'm going to try again in July. Wow. So uh, between 3 and 10, not a lot of struggle? Like just a lot of lack of energy? I think the re- main reason why I broke because I was starting to become – miserable with my family yeah yeah i get it yeah. yeah i snapped at my daughter and i was like all right i gotta stop were you doing anything prior to the fast to actually make sure you were in a ketogenic state or like a fat burning mm-hmm. state or did you do all that stuff yeah i had been, been building up since yeah. november so i had been doing you know four day five day and just like kind of building up and then staying in ketosis especially right before a long fast like that that fasting is miserable if your insulin's up terrible <laughs> terrible yeah um, so spiritually, what were you, were you meditating? Were you, how were you kind of going in that introspective journey? Yeah, every day journey? I would read from, a, from uh, a little book called The Way of Ascetics that has little, little, in, well, like clips, little um, passages from the Eastern Orthodox patriarchs. And, uh, and it was all about discipline. It's all about commitment, fasting. Prayer, just staying focused. Every morning I would get up and I read a little bit of that. I meditate, so I meditate every single morning, and uh, and just be compassionate with myself. I'd have to constantly remind myself. This is an Eastern Orthodox thing, also too, that they constantly remind themselves through a tiny little prayer called the Jesus Prayer all day long. It says uh, that goes, uh, "Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner," and it started to resonate with me because I began to realize just how much of a sinner I was because I'd get grumpy or I'd start feeling woe is me or I'd have these conversations, uh, temptations. And every time they came, rather than using my will, because when you're fasted, the will, at least my will was just drained. So I couldn't rely on my own will. So I'd have to ask for God's help. Like have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And that was very, very helpful. Just a little mantra. Another one that I would I started using was um, not by my will but by thine. 
So it's not my will. I'm a very willful person. Yeah. So I think that I I can do it. And I just began, to, and I use this one a lot even to this day that, so that I don't burn myself out, but not by my will. I have an intention, I have a dream, I have an ambition, but not by my will. I like that a lot. Very helpful. How did that affect your family? So obviously eating is a very social uh, engagement. Mm-hmm. What were you guys, did you, did you still have dinners and sit down with the family or what was your role there? Uh, there were times where I would sit with them, but I wasn't eating. And... Um, I wouldn't say that it affected us very much, except for uh, how much was being spent on groceries. Because <laughs> totally. I eat the most in the house. I got three daughters, you know. Yeah. My son is only eight. So the biggest impact on my family was, wow, I spent like $1,000 less a month on food. Yeah. I'm very curious what you experienced spiritually. So obviously you're doing the meditation, but it almost, you know, my vision of what a 10 plus day fast would be is like a this almost spiritual cleansing to where mm-hmm. you're just spending so much time introspective so mm-hmm. most of us eat and i call this coping mechanisms right yeah. Every, everyone in society has we have stress whatever whatever you label as stress anxiety and we do things to cope or we do things to mask yeah. right so i'm stressed i eat i'm stressed i drink i'm stressed i do drugs i'm stressed i have sex i'm stressed i put the music on whatever i watch tv um but you didn't have the most typical one that most people do to drown out that fear that anxiety that pain that exists so i'd love to hear about the struggles. I'd love to hear about the, the path. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Well, like I said, it, it manifests itself mostly in just my character. You know, I became very quiet. I think as far as my family is concerned, that's probably where it was most effective because I'm pretty vocal in my home. And all of a sudden, dad's not speaking too much. And like, you know, things that would typically trigger me, I would just sit and I would be with it and I would watch. I became much more allowing, you know, rather than tangling, getting involved with everything. And it's interesting because by allowing, I started to notice how things just unfold without my (laughs) contribution or my getting involved. So I would literally just sit there almost like they wouldn't even know I'm there, but like, you know, the girls would start arguing or something. And I think just my presence without even saying anything sort of shifted the environment where they would just look at me and they would just stop and walk away. It's like, well, we're not triggering dad. You know, you, you ever study like red pill philosophy and uh, you know, like uh, the rational male, they call it uh, shit tests. That women put men through shit tests. Totally. And daughters put dads through shit tests. Yeah. How, how much are you willing to put up with? <laughs> yeah. Can I push your buttons? Yep. Yeah. And, I, and I started to recognize that, that it was during the fasting that I, since I started fasting, I recognized like my daughters are shit testing me. <laughs> and so the, when I became more withdrawn and, and turned in, their shit tests had a little effect. I, I noticed that there were shit tests. I didn't know there were shit tests before. But not, then I recognized that they were shit testing me and they had little effect and they just began to dissolve, go away. So you're obviously a very consciously aware, present guy, mindful guy. Do you feel like that was escalated or is it relatively the same as it is on a day-to-day basis? Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. As mu- I'm mindful because I'm I because I'm not mindful. I'm hyperactive. I'm egocentric. You know, all those things are innate in me. And so I began down the road of meditation and humility. I mean, in a lot of ways God humbled me through my injuries. Because <laughs> I'm an arrogant bastard. Mm-hmm. The best way to get to me is just chop them up. So yep. all the, I tore my Achilles tendon, tore both biceps, tore my 
uh, had a hernia. I had so many injuries just these past few years that really humbled me. Um, but the fasting was a choice to become humbled. And so my, like my ego just, just dissolves even more than I found that it was more beneficial to my centeredness than even meditation. For sure, because it's almost 24 it's hours of meditation. instant meditation. Yeah. Almost like, you know, Wim Hof, you know, you, you get in that water, you have no choice but to breathe. You, you know, if you have, you have a hard time teaching somebody how to deep breathe, right. well, that all goes away water. when you put them in the water. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you have a hard time getting someone to be grounded and to be centered and to be mindful, take away the food. And the food, because it's our most common repetitive form of consumption, it's like the underlying pattern of consumption. We don't stop and it's we're it's completely mindless. unconscious of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When that was taken away, I began to notice all my other addictions. I didn't realize I had, you know, like sex, for example. I didn't realize how emotional, and I've been doing with my wife since we were 14 years old. Right. I didn't realize how emotional I was about sex when I came to my wife until I started fasting. Um, the, even addictions like social media and whatnot. I was smoking a lot of weed for a while. And it wasn't until I started fasting that it just fell away. You know? So you stopped smoking weed while you're fasting as well? Yeah. Well, I had to. I before I got into the the, the prolonged, uh, I was doing like some shorter ones. And Danny and I were laughing on the way here because he's my dealer. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, yo, if you fast and smoke, you're not gonna fast. No. <laughs> So I had the munchies. So I began to realize, okay, I have to stop this. But then it was so easy because I was just not consuming anything. Right. Extremeness, you know what we were talking about before? Like it's better to be extreme than to be All the way moderate. In yeah. If, if I'm stopping consumption, then I'm just stopping consumption. And it's easy. Right. But if it's like being moderate just a little bit, cutting calories, whatever it is, that for me is tough. Well, so I had a guy on my podcast a couple weeks back. Um, Brian Kane, and he said, you know, the hardest thing in the world is being 99% in. It's so much easier when you're 100% in because there's no doubt that creeps in. There's no uncertainty. There's just, this is the way I'm going. Burn the boats, go. As soon as you have that 1% of doubt, and you're like, oh, maybe I'll eat a little bit. You're, you're, it's over. It's game yep. over, right? Yep. So you're absolutely right. It has to be 100% of nothing. Mm -hmm. Yep. You break that seal. That's it. It's done. How did you break the fast? Was that at Disney? Yeah, and that's I had to decide. Once the food came to the table, I had to look at it <laughs> yeah. and decide, okay, am I going to break my fast? If it wasn't what was appealing to my soul, you know, I had to really ask myself, is, is this going to be the right thing in my body? I would have just kept fasting. But um, my wife knows me. I'm a food snob. And I was like, we're going to eat at Disney. She's like, don't worry. It was like the best place they had, which really wasn't so bad, but they – what they brought out was this huge salad and it just looked so satiating. The vegetables were fresh and crisp. Right. And uh, and just one look at it, I was like, yeah, I'm breaking fast. That's the only thing I've ever wanted to eat, either when I was dieting for a show or when I was fasting. <clears throat> Similar uh, restriction for me. And it's the only thing I ever wanted was fruit or salad. Yep. Like something that's like, because you're getting a little bit of sugar, you're getting a little bit of water. It's like the only thing I ever wanted. Mm -hmm. Very interesting, man. So what sent you down this path of um, wanting to fast and wanting to challenge your will and, and challenge your ability to be ascetic? Ascetic. 
Well, I started fasting. I assume we're rolling. We rolling? Yeah. Nice. I started fasting in 2002 uh, because I became a part of a spiritual, uh, a religious community called the Baha'is. And uh, it was so funny because I found the community and I was sold right away. I loved the scriptures. I loved the people. And I was like, oh, boy, I want to be a Baha'i. And they're like, well, uh, we start the Baha'i fast next week. And I had never fasted before. I played college football, was lifting my So, I mean, I never went without six meals a day, you know, pounding the food, drinking the protein shakes. And here they are like, well, you know, it's a part of being a Baha'i is you, you fast for 21 days. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, it was 19 days. And uh, and I was into it. I was like, oh, man, because it's a challenge also, you know, talking about being extreme. Somebody throws a challenge like that in front of me, especially when it's for, I say, spiritual ego, <laughs> for transcendence. I'm like, hell yeah. So uh, that was my first fast. And it's they fast almost like in Ramadan, where it's from sun up to sundown. So, you know, I, I would eat and drink in the morning and then uh, and then go through the whole day without without food and without water. So it's a dry fast during the day. And my life transformed in miraculous ways during that 19 days. Um, and I ascribed it at the time prior to, you know, now we have all the science about fasting, which is, which is amazing. But at the time I was just like, wow, the celestial blessings from the Lord are descending upon me as I embark on this religious fast. And so, uh, my character changed, my body changed. I had never, I had, I had not been under 200 pounds since I was like in ninth grade. And so I lost all this weight. I became, as I mentioned before with the 10 day fast, I had become much more centered and spiritual. And, uh, and I was armed with all of the, all, all the Baha'i writings. And so I was very humbled and pious during those, those 19 days and it rejuvenated. Now that we know that there's autophagy and, um, and what it does to the brain, I realized that it, during those 19 days, uh, I literally became a different person. I, I think stem cell production amps up and stuff like that. Yeah. So I, when I came home, cause I was in Springfield, Massachusetts at the time, when I came home, my friends didn't recognize me. Like, whoa, what happened to you? So I was just a completely different person. That's when I first started. That was my first fast. I'm not familiar with Baha'i. Tell me about that. So the Baha'i faith is a religion where the one of the main principles is what's described as progressive divine progressive revelation, which basically means that God is constantly speaking to mankind through divine manifestations or teachers. Christ-like figures. And so the Baha'is believe that, you know, um, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, Krishna, Zoroaster, that these are all divinely inspired teachers that God just, based on God's logic, decides, well, at this place, and he, you know, it's usually where darkness reigns, at this country, uh, at this particular time, you know, God has his cycles, I'm going to descend upon the people through this teacher and enlighten them, wake them up. And we do know that, you know, uh, where religions are sparked, a, uh, a renaissance usually begins. 
You know, I think of like Muhammad and how he brought together the warring tribes of Arabia. And it's like funny because a lot of the religious practices were very practical. Like Islam may have saved France, may have saved parts of Europe. Can't say the same now, but back then, uh, because they came in with this practice of washing, <laughs> which, you know, back then and during this, the, the particular age that I'm describing, and I can't give you the exact dates, uh, they were pretty, the French were pretty nasty. They were not bathing. They'd be caked up with makeup and put on perfume. And uh, so there was a lot of sickness. And here come the Muslims and they're, they're washing their hands, washing their face, washing their bodies. And as they came in and taught that practice, which was divinely inspired through Muhammad, disease cleared up. And so, you know, that's God's intention with all religions is to raise humanity back up. So Baha'u'llah is believed by Baha'is to be the most recent of divine manifestations. And he showed up in Persia, Iran, modern day Iran, in uh, I think it was 18, in the 1830s. And um, his message included what I just described as uh, divine revelation. And he preached global unity. And so that was very appealing to me at the time. You know, like I, I've always been attracted to religion, um, but being of mixed race and growing up in Long Island, New York, I had a hard time fit, fitting in, knowing where I belonged. You know, was, everybody knew what they were, and then they asked me, like, "What are you, Elliot?" I don't know who I am. So when I was wanting to come closer to God, and a big part of the reason that I was drawn towards coming closer to God is because I started re reading philosophy and I became introduced to um, quantum physics, science. And I started reading the book, uh, the works of a man named Apollo May, Rollo May, I think his name was. And it was the first time that I ever heard God described in a scientific way with this poetic, philosophic language. And it transcended my race, it transcended sex, it transcended the flesh, and it was scientific. And so um, I knew that there would be some form of liberation, I was looking for liberation, I guess, some form of liberation and acceptance through religion. And I couldn't find it because all of the churches were segregated. And that bothered me at the time. And when I found the Baha'i faith, uh, I was instantly attracted to it because they were, when I went to their first meeting, it was all different races of people, different languages of people. And I was like, okay, I think uh, I'll fit in here with this misfit bunch. <laughs> Very interesting. You still follow that faith? No. No. I love the writings. I love the founders of the faith. I'm not a fan of the institutions. Um, I think that there's, there's an agenda to create a global economy by turning us all into consumers. And I think that's a big part of what globalism is, uh, is trying to do, you know, dissolve, break down all of our borders and turn us into one homogenized mass of easily to easily controllable manipulate, easily to manipulate yep. consumers. And I just have this, and this is just me, 
I'm just throwing it out there. I have this sense that um, that the Baha'i faith has been hijacked by Zionists and globalists. And it would make sense because it's it's a religious philosophy that that would lend to that. It would lend to its uh, you know people being accepting of all that. But I don't think the agenda is right. I th and so that's where I'm at with it right now anyway. I'd love to go down the path of talking about commercialism and, and this constant uh, perpetuation of consumption, as you say, right? It's like, you know, this, and again, I live in North America, so I notice yeah. it most here. And, but, you know, having spent a lot of time abroad, it seems to be perpetuated globally, as you're saying. Um, this idea of the incessant desire to always keep up with the latest and you always have to have the best, this egocentric drive to accumulate trinkets. Um, how do you integrate that into your understanding of that reality into your life? Like, how do you live when you know that? And how do you avoid it? It's funny, I think, because just my nature, and I think this may be the nature of, of, of most men, but we get manipulated out of this, is to be very minimalist. I remember like, uh, you know, as a kid, I didn't want new sneakers all the time. Like I, I liked my old sneakers. And even though like all the other kids were getting new sneakers all the time, I would wear the same ones over and over again. Even if like, you look at my style now, like I wear the same thing every single day, no matter what. And so we were talking before about it being extreme. I even like extreme simplicity. Like that's why I was really interested in the carnivore diet. Like if I could just so nail everything down, yep to just like these small parameters, I can go really, really hard because there's less distraction. Yep. So the more stuff, the more trinkets, the more technology, I think as a te technology has exploded, my psychosis has increased. <laughs> I think I'm getting crazier as technology has increased yep. because there's more, there's too much information yep. and we're constantly being bombarded with, um, it used to be that you'd be bombarded with messages from the television, you turn it on or, you know, billboards, it'd be out there. But now we carry it around in our pocket. We're constantly looking at it. We're constantly being stimulated. And so um, one of the ways that I would fast from that is I would I bought a dumb phone. A dumb phone is the opposite of a smartphone. <laughs> <laughs> 1998 Nokia or what? Uh, Old school? Yeah, yeah. The flip, flip phone? phone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Can and, they, do they still connect and have good reception or not really? Yeah, it's yeah. good, but it's only good for talking. Oh. And if you want to text, you got to triple tap everything. I love that. So I did that. Yeah, it's I funny because I make jokes all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it feels better for me to be, to be minimalist, minimalist, but... I can't say that I don't I don't live a minimalist lifestyle because I have a family and I want to I wanted to do everything for my family that that you're supposed to do you know like I said we went to Disney World isn't that an interesting statement though right I know I know you're aware of that mm -hmm. the words coming out of your mouth yeah I actually it's funny because we we were never we never had a lot of money like growing up you know I, I had a, we had enough I had a good family my wife comes from they were much. Uh, they had more poverty than we did. They didn't have very much. My wife never expected a lot of me. It wasn't like she she wanted. I had to keep up the lifestyle with her. You know, she didn't even get braces until I could help her pay for them. So she didn't need much, and I was okay living a Spartan lifestyle. I, I think I it was just 
yesterday I put up a video on Instagram where I said that um, it's your woman. You, you got to be stronger than your woman's fears, and you can't, you know, um, not live the type of life that you know is right because she's afraid of for safety and security. And my wife has been great. She supports everything I did. We, if we were still, we were still hand to mouth. I mean, there was a time when I, I relied on food stamps, I literally did. And um, she would still be cool with me. But, and, and I created this trap, <laughs> not her. When I started making money and I would buy things for her, it made me feel so good. Right. Like I wouldn't buy a lot of these things for myself, like jewelry. But like when I can afford, when I was able to afford, I remember I bought her this really expensive watch with diamonds on it. And the sense of pride that I had, yeah. like, look what I can give you. And it was funny because like she received it. I mean, her face would turn red and she was, oh my God, like when she started receiving these things. And it didn't take, <laughs> it didn't take long for that in me you know, that big, that's it. Everything goes up, comes down. That sense of pride. Like, I want, like, children, I wanted to spoil them because there was a long time where we couldn't do anything. And I mean, there were times where we were even going to turn off the electricity. But when I could, I was like, I'm going to spoil them. And there, there came a point where I had a hangover from it. And I remember one day, uh, I almost like, I kind of went into a depression. I was like getting anxious. I was like, oh my God. They're going to start taking it for granted. And I'm going to have to always, pre I remember having this conversation with my wife. I'm like, uh, I know you guys are getting used to me being able to buy all this stuff for you. And we're living a really nice, like, nice lifestyle. But if I can't, but what if I, what if I can't do this anymore? Right. And, you know, would you still, so I started to have this sense of guilt. And this is, you know, these are all ways that I was wrong. These are all my beta blue pill conditioning that caused me to be this way, but I can talk about it in retrospect now because I could see how I allowed myself to be manipulated by consumer culture. How do you avoid having your kids be manipulated by it? Do you? You know, we're both um, mm -hmm. very pro uh, great parent. We're both trying to be very unique and very uh, thoughtful and mindful in our approach. And, you know, I, I try to be so conscious of the words that I choose and the gifts that I buy and how to make them appreciate it while still realizing that they're super privileged, right? Mm -hmm. Like super privileged, but it's very hard to allow them to almost shelter them from the nonsense that exists in this world and actually let them have an, an intelligent view. And do you care at such a young age? Like, what are your thoughts there? Well, the first thing I would say is that as a parent, you got to realize that if you're spoiling your children and giving them the things that you want to give them, you can't expect anything in return. I just felt like sure. that was important to say because you can very easily grow resentful yeah. and be like, oh, you spoiled brats. I'm giving you all this stuff. You got to remember, wait a second. Uh, they didn't ask to be spoiled. Right. <laughs> you did it. Yep. And so I always, and that's why even I brought up the story. Like I remember like there's a really good visceral feeling that was associated with being able to provide. And there's also conversely a very bad feeling that's associated with not being able to provide. And yes. so you're avoiding that while chasing this desire of like, I want to feel good about myself. Mm -hmm. Totally an egocentric drive. Yep. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So my kids are spoiled. Yeah. And, you have four? Uh, and I don't blame them. Three girls and a boy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't blame them. Um, 
It's a good question. And I don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm doing the best job <laughs> as far as like keeping them humble. You know, they go to private school. They, they eat the best food possible. <laughs> yeah. What I don't do is buy them a lot of stuff. Right. But it's interesting because I don't think that's something to brag about because stuff isn't the issue any longer. It's uh, technology. You know, I mean, once a kid has an iPad. It's over. What else does he need? He right. doesn't want toys. He doesn't right. want anything else. Yeah. So really, you, we spend less on gadgets and stuff uh as a result but at the same time they have an endless stream of entertainment and mm -hmm. ideas and do you curate it what they can watch we had for a while how old your youngest uh eight eight yeah we had and the oldest is uh 14 she's the age that i was when i met my wife wow and so i am conservative in, in various uh in a lot of aspects as well and uh, it's just funny because she's at the age that I started having sex with my wife. And uh, here I am, you know, based on my experience and being a dad, uh, I, I tell my children. And I truly and truly believe this. I, this is my advice to even to all young men, even that, you know, that, that follow me and ask me questions, that promiscuity is not a good idea. It no. doesn't help. We've been we've been fed a lot of BS yep. in, in this utopian idea that you it's YOLO and you can do whatever you want and go out there and screw as many people as you want. Messes with your head long term. Pornography, like another thing. And again, I grew up with with you know no guidance on this stuff, right? So you kind of go off and do your thing, and then you realize like, man, that just did nothing good for your life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like at the time, it seems like a good idea, and I know a lot of guys like to, like whatever, man, but. Um, it's just not a good idea for your brain, for your relationships. It's destroying relationships, mm -hmm. as is social media. I believe um, you know the idea that the grass is always greener. It's mm -hmm. so it's so easy to go look in this, you know, on, on Instagram or whatever the hell the Tinder or those dating apps is so mm -hmm. easy to go look, and it makes it so challenging to have a successful relationship. So yeah. I, everyone I talk to now is having struggles in the relationship. Everyone, oh my God, that just can't be a, a you know a human thing. It has to be a cultural thing. It has to be a like just because of what we're being exposed to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Leads us in d down the path of masculinity. I know mm -hmm. that's one of your favorite things to talk about. I love your conversations around that. Um, well, tell me what that means. So to you, what does it mean to be a man? Well, I look at it this way. Everything in the, in the incarnate universe, everything that's tangible, everything that's here, everything that we can sense has... It, when it's boiled down to its most fundamental building blocks, have a duality to them, mm -hmm. a tick-tock to them. I mean, even think about your heart, systole and diastole. Mm -hmm. Inhalation, exhalation. Mm -hmm. uh, proton, neutron, mm -hmm. or, or electron. Electron, I don't know yeah. what is. electron, right? Yeah. That's the feminine. Negative yeah. and then the positive. Proton, yeah. Everything's negative and positive. Right. Even the technology that we're talking about, it's a series of zeros and ones. Yeah. Right? Zeros and ones. That's all this is. Digital. That's why they call it digital. Digits. Two digits. And so the basic fundamental building blocks of everything that not only is physical, but creates potential is negative and positive. And what I mean by that is, of course, technology is because you've got the potential of the negative and the positive working together. A man and a woman, the woman being negative, vagina, empty man being positive direct uh masculine erect mm -hmm. 
give, give or take her. come yeah. together in order to produce. That, that's our most... The ability to create another human being through the negative and the positive of male and female is, a, is really... That's where all of, all of our power comes from. All of our power is sex power. All of our power is sex power. And it doesn't necessarily mean penis and vagina power. But remember before you, were, you and I were talking about uh, parasympathetic and sympathetic. Yep. Sympathetic, parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. So it's this, it's this balance between the masculine and the feminine that allows the world to, to, to be. And so, you know, I, I mentioned before about globalism and this desire to flatten the playing field through egalitarianism, or what I like to say, equalism as a religion, which doesn't exist, it doesn't make sense. We're not equal because if we were equal, we wouldn't have the power of negative and positive. And that there's this agenda to destroy the sexes. And you see it through, uh, I put up a post yesterday on um, transgenderism, where they're trying to confuse the children into believing that they don't actually have to identify with being a man or a woman. You can be 25 different sexes. And by doing so, by turning men into women, you make them much more easily manipulated. Yeah. Great because time. men are men are by our nature aggressive. We are we're direct. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not easily swayed. That's why in Genesis, the snake, the serpent came to Eve. He didn't come to Adam. Because Adam would have been like, get the fuck out of here. Step get on. that snake. Get out right. of here. What are you talking about? You're going to tell me to, not to obey my father? Not, right. not, not listen to what I'm supposed to be doing? Men, are, men require hierarchy. Men require discipline. They require a focus. They require a path. That's just our nature. But when you take that away and then you, and then you make women... Uh, you, you prop up women to behave and act more like men against their nature. You, f you create this flip-flop that we're dealing with right now where everyone's confused because women are, needs are not being met because men are acting like women. And men are frustrated and confused because they're trying to be a good guy and man up and do the right thing, but they're completely emasculated and not standing in their own strength. So we're suffering big time as a result. Families are destroyed, you know, I think something like close to 50% of children are being born to single mothers. Some, some stupid like that, especially in the African-American community, mm -hmm. some ridiculous like that. 50%, they don't have the, the negative and the positive. They just got the negative. They only got mommy. They don't have daddy. Um, families, uh, the, 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 the divorces, the divorce rate is up there like 50, 60% also. And it has a lot to do with the confusion of who is, who is the leader in the family and what our roles are. Women don't want to be women anymore because they've been fed this crock that, uh, it's better to go out there and fight in the corporate world and to go and be a, uh, a warrior in the, in the world. But meanwhile, the children are suffering. There's no one home to, to train the children. Uh, there's no good example of a masculine role model in the family. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on. Define that. What, what does that mean? So, you know, you and I being men, what does it mean to be a masculine man? Boundary setter. I think that is the, I think that's the first and foremost step to getting clear about our role in the family. 
and that is what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. Right now, what's being portrayed as acceptable by the media is anti-nature, anti-God, anti-logic, anti-rationale. There's, there's so much that's, that's not helpful that's being shoved down our children's throats through school, through the media, through the music. It's degenerate. What we've propped up as enlightened is complete degeneracy. It's the break, it's the literal social and physical breakdown of society. And it's being fed to us as something progressive, something evolved. And if men don't start being logical again and going back to nature, going back to our father, and this is why I think religion is really important for men. Like I said, men work best in hierarchies. And when we have a pattern where the word father comes from, paternity, when we have a pattern or an archetype to look to, look to for an example of how life should be lived, and, and the greatest example, I'm going this way, but God manifests himself in the, in, the, in the physical world. Look at nature and how nature goes about things. Um, when we start, not only is the pattern set so that we know the Tao, the way, the, the laws of nature so that they, we can live in, the Christians would say, walk with God. But also, as a man, we pull down the authority of the father in the home by having a religion, by having a faith, by having a God. So I think that's important also. I think, I don't think, I, I think it's, in, I don't think a man can carry the weight of authority that he needs in his home, especially in this world, if he's not pulling it down from the divine, because the government has authority over your family, the schools have authority over your family, the media has authority over your children's minds, so we have to bolster ourselves and uh, support ourselves with as much patriarchal energy, father energy, God energy, power as possible. And, uh, and you, you have to have faith in order to do that because the world will tell you you're wrong. A lot of people are attacking me. You know, they get upset when I, when I talk about these things because they... Uh, because they, in a lot of ways, a, a man also needs to be tested you know, and, 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 and my resolve. So, you know, I'm with that. Two things to pull out of that. Um, so you said men are boundary setters. How does, how does the dynamic look between a man and a woman in an ideal scenario? So boundary setters within a family, that makes a lot of mm -hmm. sense to me. Um, with the, how about the dynamic between a man and a woman? What does the interaction look like? What does the roles look like? So in Iron John, Robert Bly talks about the garden and within the garden is where things grow. And in all mythology and you know storytelling there's even a really beautiful one in the baha'i writings there's a wall around the garden nothing grows beautifully without a wall around it because it needs to be protected from scavengers or you know deer or people who want to come in and pick so a wall like donald trump wants to build a wall and everybody is so upset about the boundary that he's setting but i remember as a kid my dad we had a big fence around our house and my dad, we had a great family because my dad made it a point that everything inside these boundaries, everything inside these walls, I care for, protect, and put all my focus and concentration and love in so that it can flourish on the inside. And I think when a woman has 
a, a walled garden, she can relax and cultivate. She will be a better provider. She'll be a better caretaker. She'll be a better mother when there's the safety of the wall. My wife loves when I lay down the law. She loves when I come in and set a boundary. You know, she is more apt to be softer and to want to, to, to nourish. And, you know, my wife's a tough lady also too. <laughs> She's very tough. But at the same time, she needs my strength on the outside, on the periphery as a man to hold things out or to hold things in so that she can do her work in a relaxed way. A big part of the reason why it's tough for women to be women is because they can't relax because their men have no boundaries. Their men are, it's like a lesbian relationship. It's like two women. And you know, women don't trust each other. So she can't trust him. Very interesting. How does one integrate that into modern day living? So women often go to work. Women often, um, you know, maybe the man's not making enough money. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're having a, um, you know, just, just integrating into common expectations of society, right? Like it's, it's very abnormal, maybe not in so much in, in all circles, but it's very abnormal for a woman to stay home and take care of the kids and mm -hmm. be a mother. And what if they don't have motherly instincts? Like there's so many possible scenarios where, yeah. you know, that becomes a struggle. And what if, oh, she yeah. Did, yeah. So how do we uh, begin to, to kind of suss that out? You know, good luck. And that's, this is the struggle that most of the young men that I speak with deal with. Uh, I have a very traditional upbringing. Yeah. And my, my wife fell right in with that. And we've got a very traditional way of being with one another. We started dating very early and got married. You know, who does that? Um, but I don't, I don't think it's going to be that easy for most young men who are dealing with women who are putting up booty pics on Instagram. Right. A lot of them are super promiscuous, you know. I don't know how I would feel marrying a woman that had sex with like 50 plus guys, right. you know, which a lot of these, they're out there partying. I had a, I had a talk with Rolo Tomasi yesterday that from the Rational Male uh, book series. And, um, and he spoke about how with, because the woman is, a woman is an absorber. Women takes, takes in, men throw out. Right. So there's, and there's scientific research, you know, I'm not making this stuff up, make a lot of stuff up, but this one, he, well, secondhand scientific research that says that when a, a woman receives the sexual impression of a man, that it stays as a part of her, uh, her DNA even so that, um, that potentially the children, you know, it might be your child, but there are, there are potential aspects of the child that come from previous sex partners because there's an impression on her, you know, through epigenetics. Sure. You know that? epigenetics yeah, of course. That there's, uh, there's an impression left on her through the man. And the more she was uh, open to that man, you know, like really, you know, some, you know just because she's screwed 50 guys doesn't mean all of them really had an impact on her. The more impressed she was by, uh, by him, the, the more that her, her character, the epigenetics is, 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 is changed. So here you go, like, you know, you're, you, you want to marry this woman who's been with, you know, 50, 100 guys, and they're all living. <laughs> they're, many of them are still living inside her. 
Yeah. So um, I think it begin. I think what we're going to end up doing, and I think what's important, is a move back. To, and we're seeing this. I do believe. I I know we're seeing this. A move back to conservatism. And uh, they say that Generation Z is uh, is a very conservative generation, more so than you know Generation uh, X. You know, you and I are like Gen X and, yeah. and stuff like that. We were, I, in fact, I heard that we were the most promiscuous of all generations, Gen X. Of course, we were the children of the parents of the '60s, the hippies, yeah, right. But now Gen Z is the pendulum is swim, swinging back. Uh, I, I follow this guy on YouTube. Uh, his name is uh, Dr. Steve Turley, and he just wrote a book called The Rise of Christendom. And religion is making a huge comeback. If you just look in Europe, and you look throughout the world even, uh, Bolsonaro in, in uh, Brazil, all the, all these, they call him the, the, Donald, the Trump of the tropics. All these Donald Trump type, conservative, Christian, bound, boundary setting, wall building, alpha male uh, leaders are now gaining all kinds of popularity through Europe, uh, South America. In Canada, you know, they had this uh, this pansy. Uh, Trudeau. Trudeau. <laughs> um, I mean, he's as far left as you can go. And that other dude in France, um, apparently, you know, I just follow these news stories. Apparently, uh, the, there's a huge rise in the right wing in Canada and that, you know, it's not going to be long before he's out yeah, and they get out. their own Donald Trump. Right. So I think that, I think that, I think Donald Trump in many ways was like the, the, the harbinger of a new generation of conservatism that we are hungry for and is definitely coming back. It's very easy to, to rationalize that, right? With like, you know, everything's becoming fear-based. People are confused as ever, and they're looking for something solid to be grounded in. And you bring Daddy. it Yeah, it's exactly right. And even though we're resistant to it because our, our generation or maybe the generations that follow us have never had that, mm -hmm. they're going to be resistant to it. They need it. And I talk about that all the time. I talk about hierarchy in society. I really believe that mm -hmm. law, like the litigious society that North America is, has ruined the culture. Like if I can't walk up to someone who did something stupid and punch them in the mouth, mm -hmm. I think there's something wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Like I shouldn't have to fight him with a gun or stab him with a knife. Like I should, but you walk up and you do something stupid as a man, I think it should be part of our genetic code to punch somebody in the mouth so that there's a hierarchy mm -hmm. and you learn to shut your mouth. <laughs> like pe pe these kids are just, they run, they run around like it's the wild west. They can do whatever they want, mm -hmm. whatever they want. There's no recourse because, Hey man, you touch me, I'll sue you. That creates just complete chaos from what I can see. Right. And I say that about my kids. I'm like, if you do something stupid and somebody punches you in the mouth, I won't sue them. I'll encourage them. And I'll say, thank you. And that sounds very crude, mm -hmm. but the reality is like, hey man, you need to learn that there's repercussions for your actions. Mm -hmm. And I think our society we live in now is there's no reward. You know, if you win, oh, you can't say I'm, I'm a winner. There's there's no repercussions for negative actions. Everyone's just blended into this pot. And it goes along very much with what you're saying of the the blending of the of the mm -hmm. genders. It's mm -hmm. very interesting, man. And I've never thought about it at the deep level. You've obviously studied this, but I definitely agree on many levels and obviously there may be more that we need to discuss, but like um, it's absolutely going to be a challenge for the next generation to come through and find a successful relationship where the woman isn't massively skewed by her pain and her masculinization necessary that probably came from having a dad that wasn't setting boundaries that didn't actually step up to be a dad. Mm -hmm. And I'm so concerned about that uh, for my kids. And, and I'm very aware of that with the raising of my daughter is like, 
uh, I've seen it, and you say the shit test is a beautiful way to look at it. It's mm -hmm. like, my daughter does it all the time. <laughs> and I just stand there and with a blank look on my face, just a strong look, and I just stand and I wait. Mm -hmm. and, and when eventually you realize, like, she just comes around. She's pissed off for a minute, and then mm -hmm. she comes around and she's right back to being, like, where she's supposed to be. You know, she's not she's not lashing out. She's just, she's testing you. And then it's, it's back to normal, man. And I think... Gosh, it's such a beautiful uh, conversation that needs to be had here. But so one thing I'm, I'm, I'm kind of wanting to question with what you're saying is I'd like to get a little more clarity on um, what your studies have revealed or what your belief reveals is the solution to this gender blending. Like short of saying, hey, guys, unfortunately, you're kind of screwed. Good luck. Uh, for guys out there, I mean, guys and women who want to actually improve their relationship, they see they're having a struggle. Uh, and transparently, so I am. Uh, absolutely, I am. Um, and I think it's based on a lot of things you say, like people coming into these relationships with um, not clearly defined expectations and mm -hmm. not clearly defined roles. And it's this ambiguous attempt to uh, blend your past and my past and your beliefs and my beliefs. And it just doesn't work mm -hmm. uh, because there's so much ambiguity in a relationship. I'd love to hear, at least have a discussion with you about um, what you feel it looks like for a woman to exist in society as a feminine entity and a man to exist as a masculine entity and how you blend those two things, knowing that the past already exists, that this epigenetic reality already exists. Is there some attempt uh, that can be made in your experience as uh, potentially having people mm -hmm. figure this shit out? Yeah. Well, the very first thing is men have to start. It's up to us. We Always. can complain as much as we want about women, but they are our followers. Yeah. That's just the way it is. The, we're, we're dominant. Men are dominant. And if we don't lead, they'll go astray. So it's absolutely imperative that men begin. And I think that this movement of MGTOW, you know what MGTOW is? I don't. Oh, well, I'm about to enlighten you to something that's pretty cool. I think it's cool. There's a lot of hangups about it. It stands for men going their own way. And these are men who are basically saying, no, I'm not going to give over my sexual power to women. I'm not going to bow down and kowtow and live the feminized lifestyle because I want sex. So they basically swear off women completely. And this, in fact, uh, um, Stefan Molyneux did a, uh, a podcast on the fall of Rome. And one of the signs of the fall of the Roman Empire was that men figured out that they were being manipulated. And the best way to manipulate men is through the vagina. Sure. And so they started going off. They decided, no, we're not going to marry any longer. No, we're not going to have sex any longer. No, we're not going to be manipulated in order to, to, to be consumers so that we can be with women. And so there's, this, there's a movement that's happening in America and worldwide right now, and if you go on YouTube and you look up MGTOW, men going their own way, there are a ton of really smart, a lot of them are, are, are angry kids, um, but a lot of really smart, philosophically minded men, some of them older men who are teaching younger men why it is best to hold themselves back, preserve their sexual energy, and, and use it, transmutate it into creativity. Don't get involved with women. The only reason why women have their power is because men gave them that power. They might forget that, <laughs> but they didn't, get their, they didn't get to vote because women fought for it. 
They didn't get all, and they didn't get the birth control pill and easy abortion and no fault divorce because women fought for it. Men had to yield. Men had to give in. Men had to had to allow that to happen. So in the same way that all the power had been given away, men at an individual level can begin taking our power back by not needing pussy. And that's really where we that's really where our downfall is. And this is why you even look through all religious all religions have their monks. And there's a reason why and a lot of big towns call themselves monks. Actually I was meeting with a young man uh, recently and uh, and he called himself a monk. He's like, "Yeah, I'm a monk." And uh, and I thought that was brilliant and there's a big reason why there's always this monk class or these cla- this, this class of men that don't get involved with right. the material world. The word material comes from, you know, the root ma- of matter, which is where we get maternity also, you know, the mother. And our overemphasis on feminization, and the, which has a lot to do with our inappropriate attachment that isn't broken, appropriate. There's, a, there's supposed to be an appropriate detachment breaking away from the mother for all young men that doesn't happen in our culture any longer causes us trapped in the Maya, in the material world. And that's why we are- uh, Like a rite of passage. Consumers. Yes. In every culture, regardless if you become a monk or not, you have to put women in their right place. And putting women in the right place is not saying you get in your right place. It's about your paradigm and how you see women as a man. And most men need women. They're right. very needy, emotionally needy and physically needy yep. because they're wanting to fill this void where mommy either couldn't or mommy uh, you know, had to move away and couldn't satiate that sensuality that you know, we're grown men walking around still trying to appease as addicted what, lovers. What does that look like for a child or for a uh, you know, transcendence of, of mother? Have you read any um, spiritual or, or historical accounts of what it looks like to have this rite of passage exist? Because like that's something I'm actually very concerned with or at least very aware of, putting my children through something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just too much, uh, well, not gender, but uh, role ambiguity in society. Like when do you ever become a man? How do you know when you have to stop being a boy and start taking care of yourself and start being a strong man? It doesn't exist. So I've literally, you know, my kids being very young started, you know, framing, okay, what does it look like? And how do we build towards something at, you know, eight and 10 and 12? And we wrote that in the, in the men's group we talked about recently or, mm-hmm. or on our WhatsApp. Um, like how do you start building towards something that by the time they're, you know, 17, 18 years old, they've already built a substantial, uh, degree of confidence in themselves, their ability to, to take care of themselves, take care of a family, to take care of, you know, business, get shit done. And rather than, you know, being 25 years old and still living in mom's basement because right. you feel incompetent or, or fearful that you could challenge the world, um, ha- have you found any uh, interesting, exciting methods of doing this? Well, I'll talk about the archetype of initiation. Got it. The method is is dependent on the time. And one thing for sure men will initiate themselves if elders don't do it. And this is, you know, it could happen through sports, but it could also happen through gangs. It happens through, you know, a myriad of unresourceful ways as well. But there, cross-culturally, there's two pieces of the puzzle that are always there. So uh, 
when anthropologists like Mercer Eliade study the archetype of initiation in myriad of cultures and religions, he sees that there is always a movement away from the world of the mother. There has to be this physical separation from now the world of the mother, the world of matter is the world of society. Men must separate themselves. They must be set aside. They must get away. So for example, my brother, who was very much involved in Native American spirituality, uh, participated in a rites of passage called the Sundance. Mm -hmm. And um, so one of the things that, that they had him do, you know, he had to go away. He went up to a reservation somewhere. That's, that's the first, you have to physically be Leaf. separated from your mother. Sure. This can't happen at home. Right. <laughs> you say you can't be 25. You got to physically be separated from your, your mother. Um, our ancestors would, would make a big play of it. They would, they would, this is described in Iron John, uh, where the men and the women conspired. They knew, all right, this young man, he's starting to feel his oats. He's starting to talk back. He's starting to get aggression. Once a testosterone girl comes up, men start feeling our power, our sexual power. And the ancestors understood, ah, okay, he's ready. Now he needs some direction. He needs to take that. In our culture, we, we either call it toxic you know, toxic masculinity. Chop it down. Listen to me. Yeah. Right. Right. But what they understood was that they can direct this energy, that this energy can be used in a very resourceful way. So the uh, one example that's described in, in, in the book is that uh, the men would put on these big, scary masks. Here's, it's all about humility. Here's this little boy starting to feel his oats. He's starting to feel himself. And he's talking back to mommy. He's walking around like a big shot. He's talking to the girls. So the mothers and the fathers recognize right away, okay, it's time for him to, to, to know something. It's time for him to be initiated. So they would put on this whole, uh, this scary act where the fathers would come into the home and strip him away from his mother. And the mother would play along with it and the women would play along with it too. Oh, they're taking my boy. And, uh, and this is all to scare him because he, you have to be shocked into humility there's a, there's a sense of humility that, that uh, initiation provides. That's what it's supposed to provide so that you know, so, so you can learn how to respect the energy. And so they would take him away. And like I said, with my brother, they would, they would offer austerity. So there's always the moving away from the world of the mother, away from the tribe, away from the society, away from sensuality, comfort, your bed, safety, your baba, your safety. And they would... It would always be an austerity and a challenge. You'd be somewhere where now you're, you're really being humbled. And so my, with my brother, <laughs> they took him out up on a cliff somewhere and they found a, a boulder, drew a circle around it. I was like, you sit there and don't move. And he sat there for four days, fasting in the sun, <laughs> sitting on a rock. And that's, it's really a breakdown process. You've got to break down the mama's boy and the boy. You got to break down all of his weaknesses. So you got to challenge him. And so uh, they would, sometimes they would tattoo him. You know, you got to sit there for three days straight while they're tattooing you. And in one culture, they would knock out a couple of his teeth. Uh, another culture, they talked about how they would all, you know, all the men would cut themselves and then drip some of the water, some of the blood into a, thing and the boy would drink it so there was all these strange they may sound like things but they were all meant to humble the boy and to and to break him down so that he could participate in the second half of the 
the equation. So the first half is movement away from the mother and break down his weakness, expose himself to his shadows, and then introduction to, or what he calls atonement with the world of the father. And this is where the men would now start sharing the, the meaning and the mission and the purpose and the religion, the stories of the people that gave context for the power that he now carries. So for example, if you remember in Lion King, uh, uh, Simba, who was in the jungle, he was set apart, right? That was his initiation, he was set apart, but he, di he didn't have that introduction to the world of the father. So he moved away from the world of the mother, he was out there living in the jungle until the old Rafiki, the old initiator, came, him, found him, reminded him who he was, took him up to the mountain, to the cliff, and, sh and pointed to the sky. We always look to the sky father, and he says, you're not alone, and you have a, a tremendous responsibility. And, you know, he looked up in the sky and he saw the picture of his dad. His dad spoke to him and told him, you know, you're the king and this is important for you. And you're not alone. There's my father and the great-grandfathers and the great-great-grandfathers. Patterns, paternities, fathers, God. And so that he has now a sense of dignity a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose. So he can go back, and this is the way our ancestors would, would you know, play out the drama. It, it, it's a lot of drama. You know, we, we take drama for granted these days. Um, he would come back, and in many cases would look completely different because you know, they would scar him or something like that. And he would get a new name. You're no longer baby boy, you're big man. You know, so they give him a new name. And there would be a celebration to, it, it's funny because it was, they would also even do like a drama where he was being reborn through a, a makeshift vagina, as is described in some of the anthropological mm -hmm. work, where they would create like a, uh, like a maze for him to go through. And then on the other end of the maze, you know, he's going through the bushes or whatever. On the other end, it was like he came out, because he came out of the bush, he came out of the vagina. He came out and he was a, a brand new person and they would all recognize him. Mom would, you know, see him and like, whoa, who is, the, who is this man? Pretend like she didn't know him. And the, the, having everyone participate in the drama creates this, an emotional sense that I, I'm no longer that boy that was stripped out of here a week ago. I am a new man and I have a new mission. And not only that, I'm responsible to all of the other men and not just to my fathers and to the elders, but to the fathers above. Think about the amount of honor and dignity and purpose that a young man has when he goes through that kind of drama. There any cultures exist now that are doing this? <sighs> Mercer so, Eliade calls it, he calls it um, pseudo-initiation. And um, you know we see it with like the military. Yeah. Um, now, what if there's a breakdown, right? So what if you have this desire, but there's no, like, grandfather, there's no great-grandfather, at least that you know of that have something to be respected? Where does it go? Is, is it become, then it becomes maybe indoctrinated into some cultural, like you said, like the military or a gang or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to be uh, indoctrinated into something like that as far as hierarchy goes than simply, hey, man, my dad's kind of cool, but there's nowhere, there's nothing bigger than that. There's nothing bigger than me. Mm -hmm. So how do we begin to introduce that into life? Well, that's my intention with grounding camp. 
in 2016, I, I, you know, I always had strength camp, but I created grounding camp to mentor to the souls of men. And it's my, it's my contribution to what I believe is a momentum that needs to be started in order to bring back ritual initiation and creating, you know, there, there, there are elements to initiation that, that are required. Sacred space, moving away. So grounding camp is a retreat. We got to go away. We go somewhere that's in nature. Yeah. Um, eldership, there has to be elders. There have to be men of wisdom, men that have been there, men who have been injured, men who been there, done that, and can offer some guidance to young men. So there's that, there's myself and a lot of older men that, we'll br that we bring into the program. And then there is communitas, which means everybody needs to be on board. So you need a group of people that all acknowledge because we're, men need to be mirrored to, be, to, know, who, to know themselves. Men, uh, Jack Donovan says this in his book, Way of Man, and I think it's brilliant, where he says that uh, to, the only way a man can know he's a man is if other men treat him like a man, mirror his manness. And so it's really important for men to have other men that mirror their masculinity, that say, yes, you're a man. Yes, you're a part of this. Yes. And so there's communitas. But then there's, and this is probably, those, those pieces are fairly practical and we can, we can kind of do those. But then the fourth element, which is associated with meaning, is where religion comes in. And with the secularization of the world, we've gotten rid of ritual, we've gotten rid of sacred meaning, and we've gotten rid of, of uh, transcendent meaning, purpose in life. Mm -hmm. And I think it has a lot to do with this you know, homogenization of creating this consumer culture that they want to destroy religion. But we'll have to bring back, we'll have to acknowledge, not even bring back because God never leaves us, but we'll have to acknowledge religion. We'll have to acknowledge God's spirituality in a, not in this, oh, I'm spiritual but not religious way, but in the masculine boundary setting, strong patriarchal religious way, like the Orthodox Christians were, like the Muslims are to this day. Great perspective. Thinking my way through creating beliefs around religion and dissecting your way or sifting your way through uh, all of the noise within religion, right? There's, there's a lot. In the, it's How do you know what to follow? How do you know what is just propaganda? How do you know is ultimately just trying to manipulate you into giving money and be part of the, you know, the ultimate cause, which yep. is, you know, the materialization, right? Mm -hmm. uh, interesting perspective. And what are your current beliefs on uh, how you teach religion to your family and, and yourself? Well, I've been kind of a, a, a promiscuous religious guy, meaning like I just, I love God and my search for God and my search for meaning. It's just something that is, has been a part of my life for so long. And like you said, there's so much there's so much propaganda. As much as I was in love with the Baha'i faith, I was able to see through the agenda as well, you know? And I think that every single time one of the great teachers comes, it becomes politicized. And I don't think it's ever been their, uh, their desire to politicize it. You know, they come to liberate us. And so with that, 
it's, it's a tough question, but I can only go based on my own experience. Um, I'm a never ending seeker. And I think we have to be practical about what religion works best for us and in what culture. You know, I, I don't really have a, a good answer to that. But I do know that this is why the Baha'i faith is propped up to be the, the new globalist religion, because it's not about choosing a religion. It's about being uh, religious in whatever religion you are, but acknowledging Baha'u'llah as the newest teacher, a manifestation of the day. So I still see, I see a lot of positives that could be pulled from that, but even I have my resistance. You think there's a problem in people saying, or at its core, I guess the problem is hard to um, define, but you think there's a problem at its core with people saying, ultimately, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, meaning I believe in God or I believe in a higher power, but I'm not exactly sure what it is. It's what I get when I hear that. Um, inherently, you think there's a problem with that at its core? Because it lacks firm boundaries. I think, I think it's important for us to have a doctrine I do think it's important, like these are the rules. We This is how we do things, this is how we don't do things. Rituals, I think rituals are really, really important. I agree with that. So finding a, a faith that is not just, they call it new age, it's whatever, uh, is very ungrounded, uh, where a really grounded faith is actually very physical. like. For example, the Muslims get down on their knees, put their head on the ground, and pray every day, five times a day. That will keep any man focused and disciplined on his path. Just, just the mere physical act. Pray, prayer, like I was talking before about the Orthodox. I really like Christian, I'm really like digging Christian Orthodoxy right now. Um, their prayer is very physical. And I think that all, I think when it boils down to it, the roots of all religious prayer is physical but the orthodox say that you're not praying praying if you don't fast you've got to humble yourself think about putting your your knees on the ground and putting your head on the ground there's a humility that's associated with that physical practice you must physically enact a ritual in order to acknowledge and to come into atonement with god otherwise we're walking around as spiritual egos I do whatever i want say whatever i want have there's no respect there's no, uh, you know, you talked about hierarchy. There's no sense of hierarchy. There's this, there's just loving, peaceful, flower-picking Jesus who thinks everything's okay and that there's no boundaries. That's new age Jesus. Masculine Jesus tells you, just like a good dad, tells you this is not appropriate. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what the world's doing. We don't do this because it's inappropriate. Or it is in your best interest every day to do this. Or like fasting, it isn't, Jesus tells us, it is in, in your best interest. If you want to come to the Father, you come through me. And I'm telling you right now, pray and fast. Christians who call themselves Christians that don't fast are not Christians. They're, they're feminized beta versions of a... Uh, of a, of a of a watered down Christ. It's, it's commercial Christianity made for the masses. <laughs> a real religion is rigorous. It's got to be rigorous because our egos are strong. Do you have a family doctrine, like a set of rules that's maybe listed out for your family? Or is this something that's just, they just know from your constant reinforcement of, or do you actually have something physical? 
I don't. I don't have a physical doctrine. I began many years ago, and, and Colleen and I pull it out every once in a while, and I had this uh, operations manual, the host operations manual. But like Mike Tyson says, that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure. So, uh, you know, there was a plan, and then I got punched in the face. One of my, hey, check this out. This is how ignorant I was. Part of my plan was no TV in the house for a long time. There's no TV. No TV because I don't want my family manipulated by media. Little did I know that they were going to be carrying around TVs in their pockets. Right. You know, and uh, so I, I gave into the world in that way. But as far as teaching, and I got three daughters, it's, you know, teaching a, a, a boy and teaching daughters is a little different. Um, what I offer more than anything is a living example of how a man that they would benefit by being with is like. You know, this whole idea that daughter, the, men do this all the time because they've been feminized, that they want their daughters to be strong, independent women. Well, yeah, she's going to be anxious, she's going to have rotten eggs, and she's going to be waiting until she's 40 to have children, and she's going to be a career woman, and she, you're not going to have any grit. There's a whole lot wrong with, of course, you want to protect your children, but I would love for my daughters to have a strong, righteous, alpha male husband. And so rather than trying to turn them into men, you know, which is what a lot of, that's what we do. I'm going to make her a strong, independent woman. I try to demonstrate the type of, and I tell them too, that by verbally putting up those boundaries, it, I, it's, I think something seeps in that like, you know, I hope that you, you meet a good, strong, stable, alpha male to be your partner in life, to be your husband. And so I think that more than anything, I offer that. And then my wife is a great example. I mean, we, none of our children's parents, most of them are, you know, a big percentage of them are, have been divorced, but none of them can boast that they've been married and dating since they were 14 years old. I mean, we, and my, and my children, especially my daughters, because they're getting into that romantic age where they're like, they think we're cute. <laughs> which I think is cool. It's like, yeah, your, your parents are pretty cute. They're, we're pretty cool uh, because we, we've done things the right way. And we want nothing more than for you to have the same kind of cute so-called relationship by doing things the right way. And we've made some mistakes and we tell them about our mistakes and, we, and it is our, uh, our, our intention that you don't make the same mistakes. I can't stop my children from doing anything. It's impossible, you can't stop them. But I make it very clear that these are my intentions. This is what I believe. This is what, like I tell my daughters, don't get tattoos. Do not get tattoos. I fucked up, I got tattoos all over me. My dad's got tattoos, my whole family got tattoos. But I made these mistakes. You may make the same one, but I have to say it. So just by demonstrating and speaking up. You talked about um, this new YouTube series you're starting now to um, discuss the mistakes you've made in your life. And you're talking about mistakes in your relationship. Um, just share a few of those with us, the big, the big ones that maybe have um, had the greatest impact on your life that you were very, very sold on in the past and maybe are... Uh, shifted now well the big one that comes to mind is premarital sex and having sex in an early age or being promiscuous as a, as a young person i'm grateful for the way things turned out for me and even like speaking with rollo tomasi yesterday who's like an expert in intersexual dynamics and you know he advises lots of young men 
he asserts that uh, you know if you're if you're going to get married, you be, it's better to do it early. It's better to do it early because you protect one another. And I I totally so I'm kind of like I'm going both ways with this. Let me go back to your original question. Part of the reason why I would not have what I why I don't advise it is because of the emotional dependency that arises at a time when we're very immature. And I recognize that m both my wife and I had an emotional dependency on one another. We filled a void with one another. We became, I put it this way, we became addicted to one another. I became addicted to her, she became addicted to me. It was cool because we never, ended, we never broke each other's hearts. We were always loyal and honest with one another. So it worked out really well. Um, the good side of that, which I, I, I have to point out also, and this is why I, you, you know, I don't want to say it wasn't a mistake for me, but it's something that I advise that maybe I would, would have been different about in the past, is that we protected one another. We protected each other from rampant promiscuity. We protected each other from uh, wasting a lot of energy doing things that are unproductive. Like I am confident that a part of the reason why I was able to become a professional strongman, I was able to build my business, I was able to do so many things so rapidly is because my sexual energy was not sprayed all over the place. Right, it's focused. My sexual energy was focused. So, you know, it, a lot of it has to do with sex, you know, being uh, prudent about that. Going beyond just the relationship some of the um, other mistakes you made or things you want to discuss. In what realm? Because I made a lot of mistakes. Well, the ones that, so you said you did a YouTube yeah. series and, uh -huh. and uh, there's a few that probably pop out to you and go like, man, I wish I had known this when I was 18. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're going back yeah. to talk to your 18 year old self, what's the greatest lesson you want to teach you? I yet? would have, I would have appreciated my alpha father so much more when I was younger, if I, if I understood how feminized I was being by did the you, world. Did you guys head, headbutt? Yeah, I resented him. I resented him because he was a strong boundary setter. He was a strong alpha male in the home. And growing up with American TV, going to schools where you know, you're taught mostly by women, and, and women, whether they, they do it consciously or not, resent men and under and try to undermine them and especially if they're unconscious my mother's a good mother but i but in retrospect i can look back and i could think like you know, even to this day she'll say things jokingly but i'm like you resent my dad's power and um and there are things that she would do to undermine him and that stepped into that seeped into my consciousness sure. where then i would feel resentful toward not resentful towards him but i didn't respect him in the way that I do now, right? Because I realized, boy, you were. A I see that man. happening in my son some days, and I actually, because I'm so aware of it, I'll have a conversation with him because I am strong and I'm I'm very, I speak with conviction and I make sure things. There's very strong boundaries, but I see the resentment building some days. Mm -hmm. So having those, he's a very smart kid. So having those like, one to one conversations mm -hmm. to let him know, like, hey, there's a reason we're doing this, and. Um, you know, I know you want to do this and this and this, but just rationalizing with them, I think is very useful. I don't know if your dad ever did that with you, but mm -hmm. I think just talking to him rationally, being like, yeah. you know, you, if you, you want to be a great man and here's why we need to make sure these things are all in place for you to, to live your greatest life, for you to be great in your, you know, the rest of your life. Yep. And I think it's yeah. a powerful place to come from because, you know, people are always undermining you, right? The whole always. world undermines men yeah. and fathers. Right. 
and it's not just women, right? It's men, it's it's media, it's TV. Like everything mm-hmm. undermines authority because yes. authority is bad. Like, well, I don't necessarily agree with that. Mm-hmm. I, I agree that some authority is misguided with, yeah. Ill, intention, with Ill intention, but I think, uh, you know, having your kid at you know, a young age learning to differentiate between what, at least have a thought process behind like what is ill intention, what is good intention. Mm-hmm. And he may not always be right. My daughter may not always be right in her judgment of the intention, but at least she has a thought process rather than mindlessly following like a robot. Right. Like, think, I, I always say to them, you don't need to believe everything I say. Like, it's okay if you question everything I say. I have your best interest at heart. I hope you question it. I hope you have your own thoughts. But at the end of the day, these are still the boundaries. And I encourage them to be free thinkers. You know, hopefully that mm-hmm. ends up, it seems to be working well for me. So mm-hmm. um, encouraging thought. Now, how about as far as um, your physical body? Some of the things that you're doing other than fasting, some of the things you're doing now, maybe with your mind, with your your learning, um, anything that you want to discuss there as far as like, man, I wish I would have known this when I was 18. Well, when I was uh, in elementary school, I was uh, diagnosed with uh, attention deficit hyperactive disorder. (laughs) (laughs) And they put me on pills. So I took Ritalin. And, you know, my parents did the best that they can given the information that they had. They didn't know anything, yeah. And my parents are from Belize. Right. Uh, My mom came and she became a nurse. And, you know, when, when you grow up in a third world country and you come to America... Everything is right in America, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, it's advanced. Yeah. So my mom, you know, she got involved in the in the medical you know profession, and she's here, and so it's like the doctor's word is what it is. Yeah. And so um, anyway, so it was neither here nor there, but you know, the school decided that this kid was just way too hyperactive, had way too much energy, too much energy, man, out way too much. So we got to we got to put him on experimental right. pills. Short of putting then. you in a cage, let's just throw you on some medication that's gonna <laughs> numb your brain, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, another one of the reasons why I homeschool, man. It's like mm-hmm. my kids have that and I don't ever want to take it away from them. We were at the airport two days ago. They picked me up and they were just absolutely free souls running around. And people are looking at me like, why aren't you keeping your children under control? Yeah. And I, I would start running around with them. I'm yeah. like, I'm going to start chasing you, playing tech. There's no way I'm going to ever take that away from my kids. Right. I hope they get diagnosed with ADHD. Yeah. I'm like, that. Can, I can only wish that they have such free souls and free minds that they can run around with reckless abandon and just like be free, you know, I, I do my best. And that was one of the things that, you know, I think you asked that question when we did our little video out there, like what's the reason I took the kids out? Well, oftentimes going to their school, and if you've been to your kid's school, I know they go to private school, mine went to private school too. They literally make them walk down the hallway with their shoulder touching the wall in, in a single line. As soon as I saw that, I was like, man, we're out. Like, and I, I get it because in America now there's a lot of concerns around um, gun control and gun violence and stuff. So the kids have to be very, very, uh, controlled, mm-hmm. but I saw that and I was like, there's no way. Like mm-hmm. I would feel like a terrible human being if I let my kids grow up in this shit where they have to hide under the desk, you know, once a week to, to practice. And I'm like, right. I get sure. the concern. I get it, man. But like, I just don't want to subject my kids to that. You know, as much as it may be naive to um, restrict them from the, these things, like, or, you know, protect their little vulnerable brains. I just, mm-hmm. I just think it just makes sense. Like I don't want my kids walking down the hallway in single file with their shoulder against the wall. Otherwise they get in trouble for, and they pulled out a line because they were out of like, no way, man. Yeah. Like I was a kid in school who acted out 
And that's my greatest blessing in life, that I didn't follow the norm, that yep. I didn't listen, that I questioned everything everyone said. Like, I got in shit all the time for not believing what the teacher said. I said, I don't believe you. Yep. Explain this to me. You're not doing a good enough job explaining <laughs> it to me. Go to the principal's office, right? Like, every class. Yep. All the way up to college, man. Like, okay, well, is that a bad thing? No, it just doesn't fit into your box. I didn't know that at the time, and I wish I had someone in my life to say, hey, man, it's okay. Follow your own path. Because, yeah. like, man, I have so much passion that was, like, clubbed out of me yeah. from a childhood because, like, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. And all of a sudden, you're like, fuck, what can I do? So you literally stand there frozen. Yep. Like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to say. I can't say anything. So I'm just going to shut up. And that's a big problem. And hopefully we can encourage some, um, you know, forward-thinking fathers and mothers to um, guide, facilitate, mm -hmm. and love and everything I always talk about just comes down to love, man. Unconditional love. Mm -hmm. How do you harness unconditional love without judgment? Mm -hmm. um, but how do you even harness that unconditional love if you don't have the space? And when we're so busy and we're at work and they're at school, like where is the space right. to develop that, to cultivate that? Where's the walled garden? It doesn't exist. Yeah, and I get it, and that's part of culture, and, and you know, doing your best to cut back and not have to not have someone needs. And you talk about living the minimalist life reducing what you think you need to keep up with everyone else. It's a very challenging world. Um, but, you know, that little bit of time that you do have with your kids, making every second count. So, like, I'll go home to my kids now, and, you know, my son and I have a date night tonight, and, and my daughter's at gymnastics. And the second I, you know, park the car, turn the key off, I spend two to five minutes there anchoring every single thought about who I am, who I want to be, who I want to show up as, how am I going to show up? Am I happy? Am I positive? Am I bringing my shit with me to that relationship? So I'm doing my best. And again, I'm not perfect, man, but I do my best in every scenario to show up as my highest and best self, to, sh to give him a role model, to show him what it looks like to be strong, to be loving. Because I think loving and, and strong don't need to be dichotomous, right? Like I can right. be a strong dad and still show him unconditional love. Mm -hmm. I think it's part of the reason I was able to maybe have that awareness. I had that role model in my life. It wasn't my dad. It was my grandfather, but um, had that, that role model of like, like a, a level of respect that was unheard of and a level of love that was unheard of. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that may be a, a really important part of how, how I became the man I am. And I want that for my son and my daughter. Um, so again, giving parents some guidance out there is like show up with unconditional love, remove your expectations and judgment yeah. and, uh, and, and give them strong love, right? Mm -hmm. Let them know who's in charge. Let them know what the mm -hmm. rules are. They need to respect you. And again, I ran into something like that this morning. Like I'm sure there's a lot of time. I'd love to actually have you talk about like what it looks like when Elliot Hulse sees his boundaries are being stepped over. You know, your kids go, Hey dad, I see that boundary right there. Putting this on the side of the line. Uh, you don't like it there. How do you react? What's your coping strategy? Well, it depends on my mood. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, like, for example, uh, my daughter crossed the boundary and I had to break down her wall, like her, her, her door. The first, I had to do it twice. First time I did it, I kicked it. And that's just where I was at. <laughs> you know, you're gonna, I'm going to let you experience viscerally right. my rage. And it's funny because... I do it consciously. Sure. And like I'm walking over there and I'm like, boom. And I, I'm trying to get a reaction. I'm yeah. creating yeah, drama. A little bit of fear. Next, second time I did it, I just I just went with a hammer and took off the door and put it on <laughs> put it on the side. And she locks up. the door. Hmm? Well, you know, with each child, it's yeah, this goes along with your question. You gotta find out where their pain 
mm -hmm. lies. Because, like, for example, uh, you know, I could, I've got four of them. The same kind of punishment that I give one, the other one will be like... Pfft. Exactly, yeah. So with my daughter that I'm talking about, she really relishes her privacy. And uh, she broke some privacy boundaries in our home. So I was like, oh, well, then you don't get any, any privacy boundaries. And so we took her door down. And in fact, it's... And I've been... Maybe, and she doesn't watch... I don't know if she's going to watch this, but she'll find out. Um, I've been just waiting for her to ask to put it back. And if she ever asks to put it back... I'll put it back. But I think I know I like it when she has no door there. None of my other children close the door. She's the oldest. But I remember being a kid and teenager, I was one of my door closed too, so I understand. Um, but we get to see each other more. We interact more. I know what she's doing in there. And uh, and she has not asked for it back. So I think there was something, I think there's something in her also that appreciated. Or she's afraid. My taking, <laughs> she might be afraid. <laughs> Maybe, right? You know, when we take their uh, take their screens away, yeah, like they're begging, they're asking, but she hasn't asked for the door back, so you know, we're just gonna leave it down. So we, yeah, there's there's a consequence. There has to be a consequence for a for a broken boundary. And like I said, when I when they were younger, I would I would put on a drama. You know, you would see my fury. And I learned this from my dad, and I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I want you to know that I can be violent. I want you to know that I can be strong, that I can be rageful. Um, and my dad used to say, I want you to know that I can be crazy. And I can be crazy right now. And that would just put some fear in our hearts. Um, so I don't know if it's the right thing, but I want see, them I to struggle know, with that all the time. I man, want because... them to know that I can flip out. Yeah. So I, I struggle with that because like when they're not reacting, I'm always, you know, my, my, I call it my Hulk smash gene, right? Like I'm the calmest guy in the world right. until I'm not. And I'm always giving them like, hey, I'm just letting you know that was once. Hey, I'm just letting you know that was twice. Mm -hmm. And if it happens a third time, you're not going to like the repercussions. Right. And I'm always giving them that warning. And then sometimes you just got to go there, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm always, I'm always like, man, as soon as you're done, you know, you feel guilty or I feel guilty. I'm like, God, I did wish I didn't do that. I don't ever like get aggressive mm -hmm. or anything like that, but like laying down the law. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting line to cross, right? Like how much, mm -hmm. when, what is, their, what is their perception? Do they now start to act that out in some way? You know, mm -hmm. like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's very interesting, you know, walking down the path of human. I think they need to see that, though. Yeah. I think they need to know. I think that's why the... They, you know, they talk about the God of the Old Testament being rageful. Right. You know, it's all against, you know, it's bad. It's bad that he was rageful. But I think that there's something important about the children knowing that the father can be strong. rageful, can strong. be strong. Right. And and this is the way my dad put it, and, and he was right about it, and it's been my experience. I only need to show you that side of myself once. Once. Totally. Instill the fear of God <laughs> once and it's over. Uh-huh. That's it. That's what I did. From the mm -hmm. time they were very young, I'm like, so that's my plan. So when you do plan. that countdown, one, yeah, two, three. If there's no frame of reference for what three is. Right. They have no idea. Once you see three, <laughs> you, know <what's> up. <laughs> you don't want to see three again. Right. And I know I'm so conscious of it now, which is like mm -hmm. you said, it's a conscious thought to go kick a door in. I don't know that I go that far, but it's absolutely a conscious thought, which I think most parents don't have the ability mm -hmm. to actually be present in that moment and go... How is the, like playing it forward like a chess master, right? So that's the way I think it's like, okay, I do this, 
They're going to perceive this. They're going to perceive that. This is how I'm going to respond and make sure that's, that I'm getting the right lesson across. Mm -hmm. So that emotion, that fear is important because it's getting their brain into like a reactive state. And mm -hmm. then I'm literally playing it ahead. Okay, this is how they're going to perceive this. And this is how I'm going to take that perception and guide it down a path of learning. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's always like thinking those three steps ahead. And if I'm able to do that in the moment, which I usually am, then I can make that conscious decision. Like, is this a good idea or a bad idea? Right. <laughs> but I don't know that most parents, from my experience, most parents aren't as conscious of that. Uh, as, mm -hmm. as they need to be, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's okay. I think it is okay to, to, to let them go, hey, man, you do not step over my boundaries. And I say this to my wife all the time. It's so easy when they're not teenagers. Mm -hmm. But once they're teenagers, there's going to be a rebellion. And if they don't respect you by that point, good luck winning it by that point, right? Mm -hmm. You're done. So you have to establish it young and say like, hey, guys, I need you to know, one, I'm going to keep you safe. If anyone comes to the door, I do have this in me. And two, if you cross over boundaries, there's going to be repercussions. Yeah. So I think good. there's value in that. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I like the way you said that. That number one, I'll flip out on somebody. Oh, dude, yeah. to the death, man. Yeah, they like, got to be able to see that. I, yeah. I remember one, it was a false alarm, but... Uh, when we were living in our townhouse many years ago, um, I don't know how it happened, but a big window pane broke in our front door. And immediately I'm thinking somebody's trying to break in. And I get up and I shout right. and I run down the stairs and like, I scared my wife and children sure. more than the breaking of the thing. Because right. they were like, whoa, dad just turned yeah. into an animal. But I think my level of, the level of safety and security that, I don't think my wife, my wife has known me for a long time, so she's seen me get into bar fights right. and shit like that. But just as a father and having children, I think the level of safety and security that she sensed and the, and the children, they receive their sense of the father through the mother. That's super important. Let me actually stop and, and go there. If the mother doesn't respect the father, and if the mother doesn't hold the father up, the children cannot... And I think that's a that's a big part of how things work well in my home, is that my uh, their mother is always speaking highly of me. Right. I even remember when she was when the kids were really young. I have this piece of artwork that my daughter made when she was very very young, that my wife uh, helped her make, saying thank you, Daddy, for working so hard to provide for us. And to this day, like she she reminds the children, you have a good father. Isn't your father the best? I have a great husband. She's always speaking highly of me. And so that allows the children to receive me better. Mm -hmm. I don't think the children, and this is, you know, I got three daughters, so maybe it's different, but I watch it with my friends' children also too, even with the with the sons. If the if the mother has hang-ups about the father, it's gonna be hard for the children to Completely. fully accept the father. Yep. regardless of how good of a father he is. If she's talking bad behind his back or she doesn't respect him, the kids are going to receive that because they're closer viscerally to the mother. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, man. That's a struggle for a lot of people. I know, like, regardless of what the man's trying to do, right. if she's got her own issues going on, she's got resentment in any level, that's a big problem. She, he's not meeting her expectations in something. All of a sudden, that takes away from his authority as a dad. Mm -hmm. Super interesting. Man, human dynamics is... is uh, you know, the study of many lifetimes, I think. I think it's it's mm -hmm. not something you can study in just a few years. And uh, I look forward to watching you continue to to study and evolve and uh, to lead, man. And, and to be honest, you've got a great uh, voice. You've got a great ability to lead. And I look forward to continuing to hear all those amazing conversations, man. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. I appreciate yeah, it's you been as great. well, brother. Thanks, man. Appreciate you, buddy. 
And that's a wrap, ladies and gents. Hopefully you enjoyed the conversation with Elliot Hulse. Some things to recap. Fasting. Um, do I advocate it? Absolutely. And, and maybe if only for the reason that it's difficult, that it's challenging your paradigm, and it maybe allows you to think a little bit differently. Um, the only way we change in life is through discomfort and pain. And, um, you know, sometimes we uh, seek comfort through food. Some people seek it through alcohol. Some people seek it through drugs and, and uh, sex. But getting uncomfortable is a sure path to changing the way your brain works, changing the way you look and feel. Uh, it's definitely something interesting to think about. Um, Elliot brought up some interesting conversations around parenting and masculinity. And as I said, you may or may not agree, but it's always interesting to hear smart people talk about their beliefs and their opinions and, and validate it in a way that you know he's reading a ton of um, literature behind hey, this is what these people thought, and this is what I think too. And, and you know, you can pretty much validate any opinion and any thought that you believe wholeheartedly in. So he's seeking out the information that validates that. And, uh, you know, kudos to Elliot for doing that. And I don't want to say I disagree or I agree. I think uh, he's definitely got really interesting opinions. And, and the point of the show is to take this valuable information from everybody and learn to create your own paradigm. Learn to say, hey, I kind of like that thought, or hey, I just don't like that thought at all. I'm very offended by that thought. Uh, I think it's wrong. Okay, well, great. That's your choice. And now go live your life the way you choose. But being blinded to these opinions is, again, a blind spot. And don't ever be offended. Uh, it's okay to be offended, but um, realize that it doesn't have to be your belief, too. Uh, you can choose your own path. Uh, we also obviously talk a little bit about this controversial idea of voting. Um, you could take the opinion of, yes, men did let women vote. That's probably true at some level, but or is it maybe that everyone has equal human rights, right? Everyone's a human being. We're all equal uh, worth, and everyone should have the equal right. Men had just repressed women in the past. Again, whatever you choose to see, you choose to see. Uh, it doesn't matter. All that matters is you think, and you become more present, more conscious, and actually think. And that's really the big goal of this show, to get you guys thinking, to get you guys questioning your beliefs and thinking outside the box a little bit so we can make this world a better place. Most people will live well below the line of conscious thought. And if we can encourage just a little bit of conscious thought, even if it comes in, in a positive form, sometimes a negative form, being conscious and present in your thought is really the big goal of improving humanity and increasing the consciousness of man. And I hope you guys uh, experience that from this show. Uh, if you guys want to leave a review for myself or for Elliot, this may be a good time to do it. Go over to iTunes, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Uh, I read all the reviews. I want to know what's going on in your life. I want to know what you thought about the shows. And I get so many amazing reviews on uh, Instagram and iTunes that I'm so grateful for you guys. And realize that stuff drives the show. So uh, if it's something that you guys like hearing, if you want to experience the show, um, please, by all means, um, continue to leave us reviews and share it with at least one person you know will love it. And please don't forget to subscribe to the new Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Have an amazing day. Live your greatest life in a body that you love. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest 
interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.